This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. everyone for joining us. We're listening once again to Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Ratio Christi. This is the radio show where we help you answer the question, why should I become a Christian? I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be on Islam. So we'll have a great show for you today. Our website is Evidence for Faith. Dot com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can check out our archived shows there. If you want podcasts, you can find us on iTunes, or if you use the Android system, you can find us on Double Twist. So that's a great app that I've been using a lot. We're going to be trying to learn something about Islam today. Well, Kirk, uh, we've got a quote. This one is from Guess Who? C.S. Lewis? Yes! C.S. Lewis. Could it be? So, here we go. It says, We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Boy, ain't that the truth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Great quote from C.S. Lewis. We promise to mix in some other people in the future. (laughs) Although, for Sunday school, today I was showing a little... 30-minute documentary about the ideas of C.S. Lewis on scientism. So people uh, must, must think that I worship at his altar. I wish I had seen that. Yeah, well, it's available online. It's called The Magician's Twin. And very interesting, his comments about what he saw as the problem of, you know, like worshiping science and thinking that science was going to solve all the problems. So it looks really good. Wow, and he was pretty foresighted in that since he died in 1963, which was a while back. Oh, yeah. That's one of the points of the documentary is to show just how good his insight into human nature was. So I think people will like it if they uh, look it up online. It's called The Magician's Twin. So it's on YouTube. Well, Kirk, what we're going to do today is talk about some of the classes, some of the talks that I took at the... National Apologetics Conference. So they had one of the themes was Islam, and so there were a lot of different classes on Islam, and I took a few of them. So I think what we'll do is combine a few of those today and see what I learned. I hope this is going to be interesting for our listeners. It's not a field that I've done a whole lot of study on. I I have read the Quran. I did read a a few books, and I took some graduate work on it, you know, a class or so. But uh, still, it's not an area that I've paid a whole lot of attention to, but at the conference it was being highlighted, so I went to a lot of classes, and so I think I can help bring people up to speed a little bit anyway on some of the issues. So for those who are thinking about becoming Christians or thinking about becoming a Muslim, I think you'll find this to be interesting. We've got a few students that are at Stockton College that are in the Muslim Student Association, and they were former Christians. So it's 
you know, people do try to change sometimes. So if you're thinking about changing over to Islam, you might want to listen to this podcast or radio show before you do. Now, this first class was on Islam by Stuart McAllister. And so we'll just run through my notes. Some of this may be slightly disjointed because it's mainly what I wrote down that sounded interesting to me as as he went along. One of the things I was struck by, he said that in Islam, blasphemies against God are not as serious as insults against Muhammad. Hmm. So that's very interesting. You can blaspheme God all you want, but huh. it's very, very, it's a different thing to say anything against Muhammad. Well, that's, that is interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure what the rationale behind that would be. Maybe because they figure uh, God can defend himself, but Muhammad can't. <laughs> Actually, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was the same thing. So he did recommend a book also that is new out this year. It's called In the Shadow of the Sword by Tom Holland. And it's a history of Islam, and the subtitle has to do with the Arabic Empire. So that might be something for people who are looking for more on this. I looked at it on Amazon, looked like it was looked like a very thorough book. So one of the things about Islam is that Muslims view history as being central to their vision. So they have a vision that is historical, goes back in time and looks forward into the future about what they want to accomplish on earth. And they believe in what they call the golden years. So there was a time when they had a massive empire and they were ruled by a caliphate. You know, they had a, a leader that was in charge of all the, the Muslims. And this is their, their golden years time. You mean they they're, were, they're looking forward to retirement? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're looking to go back to that. And Stuart McAllister said, well... Historically, it wasn't so golden. There were a lot of problems with the caliphates, and he mentioned he didn't want to make a long list of them, but he just mentioned one in the first caliphate. So this is the very first empire established. There were 80,000 people who were killed for not paying their taxes. Hmm. So very strict you know, not the kind of thing you would typically think of as golden years, but this is what they're looking forward to. He also mentioned a, another book called What Went Wrong by Bernard Lewis, and this is written in 2003. And it's about the problems between East and West and Israel and the Palestinians. So he recommended that highly. And he said the caliphate came to an end in 1924. That was when Ataturk conquered Turkey and established a secular government there. But, you know, if you've been paying attention to the news, you know that things in Turkey are not so secular anymore. They're beginning to go back to a theological basis for everything. So after 1924, you have World War II. And the Germans were interested in combining with the Arabs to try to fight the British. So you have a lot of German and Arab cooperation and exchange of ideas. And the Germans wound up influencing the Arabs on a lot of their anti-Semitism and eugenics and totalitarianism. So this is where you begin to see 
the extremists start to rise up and the people who wanted to bring back the caliphate. Hmm. So in Islam, they've got this theological vision, which is kind of all-encompassing. You know, it's not just theology. It also is history. It involves politics and, you know, day-to-day action. So all of that together is Islam. You know, it's sort of like Christianity in that Christianity has a worldview. Christianity impacts all areas of life, but those areas of life all have their own realms, right? They have their own areas. So Christianity doesn't call for a theocracy, for instance. You know, they don't say that Christians ought to be or politicians ought to look to the Bible to decide what their next law that they enact should be, right? There's, they're not saying, we're not saying that God is in control and, you know, put a priest or a pastor up there. Politics has its own realm, economics its own realm, the family its own realm, the church its own realm. All of those areas should work together, and of course, they all have to follow the truth of what's out there in the world, and since the world was created by God, you'll find that it does match what the Bible says, but it's not a theocracy. Well, you're really kind of talking about the separation of church and state, aren't you? It, well, at least in the original way it was meant, which which was that there's no national religion that everybody has to subscribe to that influences the government. Well, in the yeah, or the other way around, that the government is not permitted to influence the church. Right. Uh, that's what the separation of church and state was all about. Right. So, but that goes for in Christianity. That goes for all realms. There's a, a distinctness to each realm. They are, can influence each other, but they should be recognized as separate realms. So, in other words, there's the realm of the church and there's the realm of the family. Now, do they influence each other? Of course they do. But should, the say, the pastor of the church, should he come to your house and tell you how you ought to run your family specifically? No, I don't think so. That is the husband's role, right? That's mm-hmm. the father the family leader's role. So that's the way a Christian is. But in Islam, it's different. Everything is combined. Everything is unified, all under one system. And so it's all-encompassing. It's kind of like Marxism in that sense, that you know the state controls every aspect of your life. Where do you go to school? What you will study? Where are you going to work? How much you're going to get paid? What you're going to make? How much you can charge for that item? Etc., etc., etc. So Muslims believe that the world is in a state of ignorance, and they are struggling against secularism. So really, it's kind of interesting. Islam hates atheism more than Christianity, but it fights Christianity. And atheism hates the type of religion that's expressed in Islam more than anything else, but yet it fights Christianity instead of Islam. So Christianity kind of gets the brunt of both worlds fighting against it, Hmm. when in reality they are each other's worst enemy. And so it's kind of funny. Hmm. So Muslims think that they need a vanguard to re-Islamize society. They want to reestablish the caliphate, and they're looking to build an army to do just that. So and that's one reason why they fight against secular Islamic leaders because they fe- they feel those people also are interfering with the progress of Islam. They want Sharia law to be established. 
established, and Sharia law must rule in every country. One of the things he pointed out was that there have been more than $70 billion spent in the West to spread Wahhabi Islam, so spent by Saudi Arabia to spread their Wahhabi Islam, which is an extreme totalitarian terroristic style of Islam. So he finished up the talk just by saying that we needed to study, we need to engage, we need to study and learn about Islam, we need to engage our Muslim friends, and and then we need to pray because it's a serious business, obviously. I mean, we think our taxes are bad now, you know. How about being under a caliphate? And, uh, it's death penalty if you don't pay. Hmm. So then there was a talk on answering Islam. This was by Paul Crows, and it was very interesting. I've got a lot more notes on this one, so we'll see what's good in here. He mentioned that Islam now has 1.5 billion followers. Uh, compare that to Christianity, which has about 2.2 billion followers. So he talked about kind of what are the beliefs of Muslims, and then how can we deal with some of those beliefs? So he broke it down into beliefs about God and some of the more interesting things that you wouldn't necessarily know about. One is that they believe that Allah has no fellowship with mankind. So you really can't know him, not in the way that you can know the God of Christianity. And you're expected to serve and obey him. So he is basically a taskmaster. They don't have any concept of fatherhood, the fatherhood of God. You're more like a slave, and he's your boss. The other thing that they emphasize is that Allah is one. He's sing, right? He's not a trinity. He's just a unity. And one of the interesting things he said was that he's not a spirit either because they believe that spirits are created things. So I'm not sure what it is that Muslims would actually believe God is. I assume they don't believe that he's physical. So if he's not physical and he's not spiritual, I'm not sure what his substance consists of. Well, that kind of fits in with uh, what you said about the um, Allah is kind of unknowable, so they really don't know exactly what he is either. <laughs> yeah, that may be. I would have loved to have had a chance to uh, ask the question. So maybe I'll ask one of my Muslim friends what they what they think Allah is. He's kind of a mystery in himself. Yeah. Well, and that may be. He referred to Surah chapter – well, Surah just means chapter. So in the Quran, chapter 4, verse 171, which says, do not say three. So this is that, you know, God is not a trinity. Although – he mentioned that Muhammad didn't really reject true Christianity, didn't really reject the trinity of Christianity because they believed that the trinity they were rejecting was the trinity of God the Father, Jesus, and Mary. So somehow Muhammad got a little confused about what the trinity of Christianity was and thought that's what he was rejecting. Hmm. So one of the issues I think, and we brought this up past, is that you have all sorts of philosophical and theological problems with a God that is just a singularity because he's not at the beginning of time prior to the creation of the world where he is existing in eternity past. There's He's not in any relationship with anyone and he's not communicating with anyone. So you can ask, you can ask the question, was he lonely? Well, 
if he's any kind of personality at all, he would be lonely. So if he's not lonely, then, you know, is he crazy? Is he not a person? And if he's not a person, then maybe he is just some kind of a force. So there's all kinds of issues that you have if God is just a unity. He can't be personal. He has weaknesses. If he is personal, if he's a personal God, then he would have weaknesses like he would be lonely. Well, if he wasn't lonely, then he's got problems because there's something wrong with him. You know, he's mentally ill. (laughs) So a, a unity as a person just doesn't really work. And it's one of the strong reasons to consider Christianity because the Trinity makes a lot of sense out of very difficult philosophical and theological problems. Is there actually room in Islam to believe uh, that Allah is an impersonal force or, or do they reject that idea? Yeah, that I'm not sure of. So I think they think that he is a personal God that you could pray to, that you could communicate with. That, you know, when you pray, that you're not just trying to affect some kind of a force out there. Yeah, that's probably true. So, I, I, you know, they see him as an agent, as an active agent in the world doing things. So, yeah. So he's, know, he's a being of some kind. They just don't know exactly what kind of a being. Well, probably uh, they might have an answer for that. But uh, it's difficult for me to understand what, what that might be. Right. Then the other thing is that Allah cannot love unconditionally. So they believe that God loves the Muslim because the Muslim first loved God. So that's a kind of a twist on things, just basically the opposite of Christianity. You know, we believe that God loved us first and that God gives us the Holy Spirit and helps us to love him back and that he loves us unconditionally or despite the evil that we've done because he has decided to forgive us and Jesus took the payment. But in Islam, it's the opposite. You first love God, and if you love him well enough, then God will love you back. So that really doesn't make him that much different than a human being in that aspect then, because he loves those who love him and he hates those who hate him. Right, the same as uh, criminals do, right? So then the other concept, he said, is that Allah is linked with both good and evil. And he referenced chapter 3, verse 165, where it talks about God leading man into wickedness. So in Islam, there's a very fatalistic view of things. You know, things are the way they are, both good or evil, and that's just the way it is. You know, that's the way God did things. Hmm. So the problem is then you know, how can God judge man? If, if God causes evil himself, how can, how can God judge mankind for evil when it's God who also does evil things? Yeah, he and, can't legitimately judge human beings for doing the same things that he does. Or for doing the things that he makes them do. Right. So another, another real theological problem that they have. I guess I should mention for people that have just tuned us in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, the ministry of Rosho Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Talking about Islam from some classes, some talks that I took at the National Apologetics Conference. You know, this is interesting. Um, I don't. I hope I'm not getting ahead of you here, but um, a lot of this stuff that you're saying here, uh, what's crossing my mind is... Uh, how you're kind of undermining the idea that a lot of people have that 
the God of the Bible and the God of the Koran are the same God, and yet you're describing two different gods that have two very different, um, if you want to call it personalities or qualities or whatever, they're, they're definitely uh, doesn't sound like the same being to me. Yeah, exactly. I talked to a Muslim once who tried to insist that Allah and the God of the Bible are the same God. Now, of course, what he meant is that Christians have the wrong God. <laughs> so we are the ones who misunderstand who God is. So, of course, if you want to look at it from outside and be objective, you'd have to say that these are two completely different gods. They're not the same God. So we do have different gods, and, you know, I think claiming that they're the same is kind of, a, you know, a tactic. Well, basically, if you take the Bible at face value and you take the Quran at face value, you can't reconcile their pictures of Absolutely. who God is because they're totally different pictures. You ha it has to be that one or the other is wrong. Right. It's not that, oh, you know, see, here's how you can tweak it a little bit and they're sort of the same. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. Right. So this talk by Paul Cruz, he gave a couple of questions that you could ask a Muslim friend or for Muslims to think about. One was, of course, how can God judge? The other is to ask them if they've considered the personal relationship that God had Adam and with Abraham. Why is it that God could have a personal relationship with Adam and Abraham, but he can't have one with you? Hmm. Whereas in Christianity, we do have personal relationships with God, our Creator. Another thing he mentioned is, doesn't the Quran teach that God does not love evildoers, right? Mm -hmm. God makes you do evil, and that's why you do evil, then God must not love you. Because the Quran teaches that God doesn't love evildoers. Whereas on the other hand, the Gospels say that God does love you, even though you are an evildoer. So it's not God who's making you do evil. You do that because of your fallen nature. And then another question is, how can God be holy, right? If God is doing wrong things, if God is making people do evil, then how can God be holy? Hmm. Then he went on to talk about the differences in Scripture, Islam's view of Scripture. In Islam, the Quran is the final revelation. So it's not the book of Revelation, which says that it's the, re it's the final revelation. The Quran believes that it is the final revelation. So he talked a little bit about the history. The Quran was written after Muhammad's death and store, you know, things that he had spoken to them, all the oral tradition was written down, and those were copied, and, you know, obviously no printing presses back then, so this is, you know, 6th, 7th century, actually 7th, 8th century. Everything was handwritten, so you get errors begin to build up, and the way that you solve that problem, you know, is, this, is the way that, you know, Christian scholars have done is that you collect as many manuscripts as you can and then you compare them and you can see the original set because the errors are never the same. They're always different errors. But what happened is in the second caliphate, they noticed that there were a bunch of errors cropping up and there were different versions of the Quran. So what the caliph did is he ordered that they gather in all the Qurans and they picked one version, and then they burned all the rest of them. So you can see where that's going. 
Do you know? Do you know how they picked the one they picked? Nope, I don't. It's whatever the caliph liked. <laughs> assume maybe they had some kind of criteria that they used, but their problem is that they burned everything else. So now there's no way to find out what the original was. You've only got one version, and how are you going to be able to tell if there were errors in that version? Right? You, you can't. Do you think, you, do you you think they got them all? Do you think there might be a, a, a variant copy floating around somewhere we might discover one of these days? Well, actually, there are, yeah. They, there was a major discovery in the 1970s. They were renovating a very, very ancient mosque. I believe it was in Yemen. I'm not sure. People could look it up. But in between the walls of this mosque, they you know, broke open an area that they were renovating, and they found piles and piles of ancient Qurans, handwritten manuscripts. Well, that's kind of redundant. Manuscripts means handwritten. But anyway, manuscripts of the Quran, and they were very different from the modern-day Quran. And actually, there's two versions that's another thing. There's even today there are two versions of the Quran. There are two printed versions. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that it was kind of interesting to learn. And they even had a quote from an imam who was complaining when he was debating somebody, and they brought up the fact that there were two different versions. And he said, "No, there are not two different versions of the Quran." And I am familiar, or I am, I have memorized both versions. So, you know. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there, he didn't, they deny that there are two versions, but then they're very proud to admit that they've memorized both versions. <laughs> so what did they do with all these manuscripts they found? Well, they are being studied, and they apparently there is some a great deal of concern in academia that they may be destroyed. Hmm. So there is a movement amongst some Islamists who want to destroy those uh, Qurans. Right. We'll see what happens. Now, it's sort of interesting. It doesn't really matter. What's amazing is that you, you don't, it doesn't really matter um, what version you have because the Quran is kind of adjustable. The Quran has this concept called abrogation. Are you familiar with this, Kirk? Um, not sure what the word means. Give me a definition. Well, it's the idea that as Muhammad was writing and telling or telling the revelations from God that a newer revelation can do away with a previous revelation. Yes, that concept I've heard, that the later verses in the Quran um, outweigh the earlier versions if they happen to say two different things. Exactly. Okay. So if you were, you know, if you're reading the Quran, there are verses in there where it talks about getting along very nicely with Christians and Christians are your best friends and things like that. And then you get later on when Muhammad was having problems with Christians, you get verses about laying in wait for them and setting ambushes and killing them. You know, don't ever be their friend and things like that. Hmm. This is kind of the same thing that Mormonism went through. They get revelations from God. And if they realize that they made a mistake, then you just have a new revelation that corrects the old things, and that's abrogation. Okay. So I, ne I never heard that particular word applied to that before. Yeah, that's what that's what it's called. It's the doctrine of abrogation. Okay. Now, so some of the things that you could discuss with your Muslim friend then is, well, can God abrogate the Quran again? Right? Can yeah. 
can he give a revelation that would undo his previous revelation? Sounds like he could. Yeah, exactly. He would have to, right? Well, then how do you know that that's what you're supposed to be doing now? Maybe God has abrogated it, right? Or could God pick another prophet, right? Why couldn't he? I mean, you know, Muhammad is supposed to be the last prophet, but the canon of Revelation had already been closed in the book of Revelation. So if Muhammad opened up the Revelation and gave new Revelation, then why can't somebody else like Joseph Smith come along and give another Revelation? Right. Then there's this claim that the Quran is the most beautifully written book in the world. So just ask your friend... You know, really, is it more beautiful than Shakespeare, right? I guess, you know, when you read it in English, it doesn't seem all that beautifully written. But so people will claim, the Muslims will claim, well, you have to read it in Arabic. Right. So I guess if you're going to learn how to read Arabic, you're pretty committed to the Quran in the first place. The other thing that you can ask them is, what about uh, prophecies, right? How come there are no prophecies in the Quran, things that were written hundreds of years before they actually happened, like are in the Bible. Wouldn't that have been a good way for God to have revealed the truth about what he was saying? So then he goes on to talk about Jesus, and I guess we should mention that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, the ministry of Rasio Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Talking about Islam, some classes that I took at the National apologetics conference last month. This talk, as I mentioned, was by Paul Crows, and so he talked about the Muslim view of Jesus. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard, Kirk, that they have a very positive view of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They believe that he was a miracle worker. They believe he was an apostle of Allah, a message bringer. They don't believe that he was God, and they don't believe that he was crucified. But they also do believe he was born of a virgin, isn't that right? That's right. So, and he even did creative kinds of miracles where I think he turned a clay bird into a real bird, things like that. Uh-huh. So they have a very positive view of Jesus, but that he was kind of like Muhammad for the Jewish people. So not God, and because he was a prophet, nothing bad could happen because nothing bad happens to God's people. So he couldn't have been crucified. Well, that lets out a lot of the Old Testament prophets, too, because all kinds of bad things happen to them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then he talked about their view of salvation. This was kind of interesting. Muslims don't believe that people have a sin nature, okay? So you don't need redemption because you don't have a sin nature, right? You can just... If you do good works, then you can be accepted by God. But they're very uncertain about salvation. They don't know. And even Muhammad said that he wasn't certain that he would be saved. Hmm. So for them, they're always very uncertain. So they're always trying to earn paradise. And, you know, this is why you see people going on jihad and doing terroristic acts, because they want to be certain that they're going to get to heaven. Hmm. All right, let's see. He asked, he suggested that we share Hebrews 10 with them. I didn't look up Hebrews 10 to see why, but I can do that if they like. And then he suggested the question, you know, how many good works does it take to go to heaven? Hmm. Of course, they don't have an answer for that. So they really should consider becoming a uh, 
a Christian. And then his recommendation was that you pray for your Muslim friend, that you really develop a relationship with them, and that you serve them in love. So, and, you know, I always say that Jesus taught us that the only way we really learn things is through relationships. That's why he spent three years with his disciples. You know, you, you just really have to disciple through your life. That's how people change. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. There was another talk. This was on, this was by Dan Deal, and this was on something called Muslim polemics. And he gave, he made the statement, he said, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So his obvious advice is that, you know, we need to love our Muslim neighbors and friends. He talked about some of the teachings of Islam and he gave chapter and verse. So chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says that you have to pray the certain prayer 17 times a day. So that's a, that's a lot. Hmm. 17 separate times? Yep. And uh, I'm sorry, here's, I didn't put this in quotes, so I wasn't sure this applied, but actually this is 17 times you have to say the prayer, I'm glad I'm not a Christian. <laughs> so you can see that we're really up against it, you know, when you try to witness to Muslims, because they are, if they're faithful Muslims and they're doing their prayers, they are praying 17 times a day, I'm glad I'm not a Christian. Wow. Yeah. It makes makes me think about the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee who was praying, you know, I'm glad I'm not like one of those. Right. I'm, I'm a better person than that. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, the pastor of my church today, his sermon was kind of on that topic about um, he was talking about meekness and um, how the um, – the sinner who uh, was in the temple and cried and admitted his sins and everything was accepted by God. But then the Pharisee that came in after him and said, oh, thank you, God, that I'm better than him and I'm not all messed up and I'm I'm pretty good and I've pretty much arrived and all that, that God doesn't – it was funny the way our pastor put it. He said, God doesn't know what to do with those kind of people that think they've arrived. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's – if you're looking down on other people, you're not the kind of person God's interested in, right? He yeah. is and, down on you. And if you, you know, if you think you've arrived and you've reached a plateau and you, there's nothing more God can teach you or whatever, it's like, well, what can God do with you after that point? <laughs> exactly. Another verse is from chapter 5, verse 52, where it says they're not to have Christian friends. So, Ooh. yeah. So that's that can be tough, and I know that's been an issue with some, you know, of my devout Muslim friends. You know, it tends to be a very one-sided friendship. You know, right. yeah, they're a friend. Boy, and the deck I, is really stacked against you from the beginning there. Exactly. And then chapter two, verse one hundred nine, tells them that Christians are always trying to convert them. So it can't be that they're that they're actually being your friend. They're they're only doing it so that they could convert you. Hmm. Then he talked about the Gospel of Barnabas because this is a recent Muslim polemic. The have you have you heard anything about this? It's been online a little bit and in the news a little bit. There was supposedly a Gospel of Barnabas found from the 1500s, and the Muslims have it, and they are claiming that this is the true gospel. Is that another uh, Gnostic type uh, document? Yes, exactly. Okay, and so. 
it actually may be written with Muslims in mind. So it may be even later than the Gnostics, but actually there's a few notes here about some of the dating of it. So the reason that they believe that this gospel is the the true gospel, in chapter 2, verse 79, the Quran says that Christians wrote the New Testament for money. Okay, And then in chapter 7, verse 157, it says that Christians removed mentions of Muhammad. Oh, jeez. So he mentions, as an aside, I guess, on this note I have here, he says that to make sure that we don't attack, you know, to make sure that we don't attack the Quran, it's not a good approach. But he goes on to talk about this Gospel of Barnabas. And he says that the earliest mentions of the Gospel of Barnabas, okay, so this is the earliest possible mention, is from the 5th century. Now, that would predate Islam, but there's that mention is actually in doubt. So we're not certain that the, that's an actual mention of it. There, we have the first appearance of the, the book in Holland in 1709. So we have an uh, actual book from 1709. But then there are reports that go back to the 14th or 15th century. Also, he mentioned that no Muslim writers talk about the Gospel of Barnabas before the 15th century. And no church father ever talked about the Gospel of Barnabas. So there are no quotes, there's no references to it, there's just this one possible mention from the 5th century, that's all we have, then everything else seems to come from the 14th or 15th century. So this is well after Islam, and so it may have actually been written by Muslims. One of the things that is internal evidence that it's likely to be from the Middle Ages is because it quotes from Dante's Inferno. So Dante's Inferno was written in the 14th century. Hmm. So, obviously, it would have to be after the 14th century. It talks about the seven levels of hell that Dante wrote about. And also the quotes that when it refers to what someone said, the quotes are from the Vulgate. So, you know, the Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament done in the 4th century. So, again, you know, it's at least after that. And let's see, talked about a couple of things. These notes are all not all that clear, but it, it mentions something like it gets things wrong, like it says that the Jubilee occurred every 100 years. So, of course, it happened every 50 years. Actually, 49 years, it was the 50th year. Mm. So that was that on that talk. And then there was another talk on Islam by Del Potter. I don't have a lot of notes on this, but he mentioned that first peter 3:15 and that's the verse that we often use about being ready to give a defense and he wanted to point out the first part of it that we tend to neglect and not look look to and that is that we it says we should sanctify Jesus as lord so he wanted to encourage people that you know you need to really sanctify Jesus as lord as a starting point before you begin to defend the Christian faith. And then he talked about Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says that he is sending us as lambs to the wolves. And so he brought out the point that Jesus really intentionally is sending us in harm's way. 
So not to be afraid and to be willing to witness and, you know, to be missionaries, to go into the Middle East and to share the gospel, even though you could be risking your life. You know, it's not like that surprises Jesus. He, he knew what he was doing when he told us to spread the gospel into all the world, that that would mean that people might get killed for what they were saying that, and spreading his message of love. And then he ended on the idea that we should, in talking with our Muslim friends, that we should ask as many questions as you can and just really get to know them and their feelings and their worries and concerns. So that was basically it for the Muslim courses, the courses on Islam or talks on Islam that I that I took. I think we've got a few minutes left, so I thought maybe we could talk about something briefly. This was a, a talk by Bill Dembski, and if anybody knows Bill Dembski, it's, you know, you're, it's not going to be easy to condense something that he says into three minutes. <laughs> As a double PhD, he is one of the founding fathers of the intelligent design movement. He's a PhD in mathematics and a PhD in philosophy. And he talked about the idea that – talked about the consistency or the uh, conservation, rather, of information. So information is conserved and there's no – there's – well, here, let me just go over briefly – he said it wasn't until the 19, 1961, even though they got the structure of DNA in 1953, they didn't realize that it was a code until 1961. Hmm. DNA gets transferred into messenger RNA, which creates the proteins. And all of this is prior to natural selection. So you're really stuck in this kind of, you know, realm where you've got nothing you know you you don't have the ability to change proteins through natural selection until you've already got the ability you have to have life so where did that information come from and it's just basically it's like an argument from imagination you just have to create some kind of imaginary argument of how you could get information occurring when you don't have natural selection so he talked about information as a search, that you could define it as a search, that information has a cost, and you can measure the cost of information. It's So if information is a search or information tells you something, then that removes possibilities or probabilities. For instance, if I know the location of a buried treasure, then that keeps me from having hunt all over the place for the buried treasure. You know that it's not anywhere else other than where it is. <laughs> That's right. So I have lowered the probabilities so or raised the probability that I can find it. You know, And you can do the same with a, a lottery ticket. So say you buy one lottery ticket, you have very low probability. Well, you could, you could increase the probability of winning by just buying more lottery tickets. And in fact, until you get to the point where you would break even, right? Because mm-hmm. you spent all the money that it cost. And, you know, you bought every ticket. Now it's absolutely certain you're going to win. And what do you win? Just exactly what you spent. Right. So in other words, there's no way to gain. You can't gain just by natural processes. You cannot gain anything. So uh, it was a really good argument against evolution. And briefly, the you know, the idea of the treasure map, if, you know, if you don't know where the treasure is, maybe you could find a map. 
that tells you where the treasure is, but then you'd have to spend all your time searching for the map. So you just you have just as much cost trying to find the map as you would trying to find the treasure. Right. <laughs> so there's no increase, and you can't have information just magically popping out of nowhere. All right. Well, that is it for today. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send us your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,